for this year's Halloween episode, I just decided that I would make a super long additional bonus episode for Halloween. So, I hope you enjoy, and happy Halloween. Don't forget to vote. The Nightmare Society. This all went down during the spring break of my junior year of high school. My school was in a pretty small Iowa town with a district spanning several smaller hamlets. During the summer of 2014, a few friends of mine put together a film club that would make short films and compete in national film festivals against other schools. We were a pretty small group and found it kind of difficult to get together for any actual filming until spring break of 2015, when we made plans for a little excursion. Four of us ended up going on the trip, myself and three members of the club, Jake, Bill, and Kyle. We ended up choosing to go camping out at Mossy Glen Hollow, a supposedly haunted state park up in northeastern Iowa. Since the 1850s, there have been several murders and suicides out at Mossy Glen, including a few decapitations and a hired hitman in the 1930s. Being the edgy teens that we were, we jumped at the chance to go hiking and camping somewhere like that. It was within 15 minutes of a small town as well, so stocking up on food wouldn't be that big of an issue either. So, all lights green. We loaded up two of our sedans, programmed the GPS, and off we were for a spring break of camping in some haunted woods. After the first hour and a half on the road, a few red flags began to fly. After the last large town before getting way out in the boondocks, my phone's data signal cut out, and the GPS randomly changed directions on us. Since none of us had any idea where the hell we were, or where Mossy Glen was supposed to be, we didn't have much choice but to blindly follow the new route. Here's the thing about Iowa land distribution, especially up north. Because the hills can get so uneven at places, you end up with portions of land that are too steep or too rocky to farm or small flat basins that are surrounded by steep slopes that it makes farming incredibly difficult. Over the course of several decades, you end up with farmers buying up plots of farmland with patches of unworkable land stuck in between. Rather than buy this land and pay property tax on it for several centuries, these farms stay in families for generations. The land either remains unpurchased and public, repurchased by the state, or donated to the state or DNR. Many of these plots get designated as state parks or preserves surrounded by private property, such as, as we soon found out, Mossy Glen Hollow. This explains the private property sign by the lake, which was land purchased right next to the unusable boulder-covered creek. Now that we are firmly in the middle of nowhere, Our GPS took us off the paved highways and onto gravel roads. At this point, you typically would see the usual brown Iowa DNR signs designating that you were near a state park. 
but there were none. There weren't even any tree clumps to indicate that you were near some sort of forest. Red flag number two. Another ten minutes or so into the drive and the gravel road soon turns into a dirt road, then a low maintenance road, then a class B minimum maintenance road. With Iowa's dedication to road preservation, this basically means that somebody probably came by and took a peek in the 90s and then promptly forgot about its existence. As we come around the last hilly bend that the GPS shows on our route, we see a farmhouse with a large machine shed with no lights or activity around either and no cars in the driveway. A bit weirded out that a house would be right next to a state park, we slow down and keep rolling. To our dismay, however, the road dissolves into a mess of washed tractor tire gouges from last fall's harvest. We stop the cars as far down as we can pass without getting hung up on a frozen rut and unpack some of our equipment. The road gradually narrows, snakes down the middle of a field and turns down into the small but very thick clump of woods at the bottom of a wide ravine. We get out and hike down the gradually steepening slope and take in the scenery. At first everything looks like a pretty cool set to film at. There are several limestone outcrops hanging off of the hillside, a footpath with some picturesque tree overhang, and even a few birds out that made an unseasonal return from wintering down south. We can all hear some water running, but can't identify a source from the trail. Looking off in any direction, all we could see was a seemingly endless sea of trees. At the bottom of the hill was a small pond in the middle of a grassy clearing with a fence. As we approached the fence, we noticed a sign. Private property. Keep out. Bill checks his watch and realizes that it's almost time for dinner. So we trek back to our vehicles and hook up the GPS. The nearest town over was a little place called Edgewood that had several diners and a gas station to load up on supplies for the week. We brought some canned food, but not much beyond that. As we got to town, we realized that Edgewood was a lot smaller than we had expected. Less than 900 people, it would turn out. Everyone knows everyone in these small towns. So we got several weird looks when four strangers rolled up with plates from the other side of the state. Kyle thought to ask the cashier and a few people at the gas station about Mossy Glen Hollow and why the only route in was through some dude's field on a busted out dirt road. To our surprise, nobody had even heard of a place called Mossy Glen, nor could they figure out why the hell four high schoolers suddenly rolled into town looking for the place. Red flag number three. We shrug it off as just a few crazy locals and take off back down the dirt trail. As we round the corner back near the farmhouse, we notice that all the lights are still off and nobody seems to be home. I suggest that we leave some sort of note on the house door that we are going to be parking on the side of the road near the place, just to be safe. It is starting to get late in the day and being this far out in the country, it wouldn't be unheard of to come face to face with a shotgun when the homeowners find our cars. Since the road is impassable from that point on anyway, 
parking there wouldn't realistically block anybody off of the road and would still technically be on public land. We hike back down the wooded trail and start scouting for a place to set up camp for the night. Making sure to be on the public side of the fenced pond area, we discovered that the sea of trees that we saw earlier was actually quite a bit thinner when seen from below. In fact, the dirt path led to a decently sized clearing with a creek and small waterfall cutting through the limestone deposits. None of us could believe that we had missed such a thing a few hours earlier, when Bill comes to a realization. He disappears around the corner back into the trees and emerges at the top of the trail a few minutes later. Though we could plainly see him, the trees lined up just right so that he could not see anything beyond the rocks below the path ledge. Continuing further up the creek, we notice that there are conveniently placed rocks about the perfect distance apart to step without disturbing the water or surrounding rocks. One could walk almost silently up and down the creek while the sound of the water masked the steps. Not thinking much of it, we take some pictures of the large moss-covered boulders all around and get some pretty nice scenic shots. We find a place to make camp and everything is going great until we approached the waterfall. Just before the waterfall sat a clearing without any large boulders or rocks and an odd arrangement of logs. One sat horizontal, supported at each end by two piles of rocks. In front sat a crude stone circle with a pile of burnt logs inside, a fire pit with a bench. There was also several dozen piles of carefully stacked rocks all over the park always in sets of three. Though a bit of a surprise at first, we shrug it off as some weekend project that the people up at the house put together. After all, with such a cool place just a short walk from home, why not? I have a similar fire pit set up at home, so I'm not too concerned. Hey, what the hell is this? Kyle yells from a boulder a few yards ahead. On it set a blaze orange beanie a single gardening glove, an empty can of beer, and a stick of deodorant that had seen some serious wear. Looking closer at the beer can, we realized that it must have been opened fairly recently. Foam is still fresh in the bottom of the can, and it still had a funny smell. Bewildered by what the hell we just found, Jake starts looking around the other side of the boulders, upstream of the items. Holy shit, there's a cable beer, he shouts back to us. Later he told us that the cave was large enough to comfortably fit a person inside, and that more disturbingly, he saw some red fabric inside as well. Before he can get a good look around, Kyle calls the three of us back over to him with a sense of urgency. He speaks very quietly to us and indicates that we should not shout back. Shampoo! Fucking shampoo! He whispers, pointing urgently down at his feet. Sure enough, in the mud and leaves, there's a blue bottle of suave shampoo right next to the creek. At this point, we're all adequately freaked the fuck out and ready to call our little soiree quits. Bill remains pretty sure that this is just junk left behind by the people up at the house after a weekend of a few too many bush lights, but things just didn't add up to me. There's one detail that I've been leaving out up to this point. The day before, this part of Iowa got some heavy rain, which contributed to the mud situation on the road and on the trail. 
With the combination of wind and rain, the items on the rocks would have shown some signs of being wet, if not been displaced entirely. Also, the air was pretty cold as it is every year around this time, not getting above the mid-40s for the whole week. Then everything starts to click for me. Whoever drank the beer and left the shampoo, hat, glove, and deodorant down there must have done something this morning. The fire pit also had fresh char marks on the rocks and the wood had not been wet for a while, meaning that it must have been lit last night at the earliest. The small cave would have provided enough shelter from the rain to stay dry. With the freezing temperatures all throughout the day, whoever was using shampoo out here must have had little other choice to do so. If it was the homeowners, they would have had to be serious masochists to bathe in the shallow, freezing, rocky creek rather than at home. If it wasn't them, then we likely weren't alone now. Whoever left these things out left in a hurry, and if they were here four hours ago, they would have been able to see us on the trail cliff long before we even knew they were down here. Remembering the arrangement of rocks on the stream, they could have even been leaving their camp just as we were coming down the dirt trail. As I processed this, I started to look around at my surroundings and realized that the small area was bordered by the thick trees on the trail side, several sets of huge boulders on the pond side, and limestone cliffs everywhere else. Due to the tree, rock, and hill cover, you could light a fire in the pit at night and nobody around would ever know. The illusion of being able to see up the dirt trail from the camp but not down played in reverse from the cliffs. If you were wearing brown or green, you could easily see down from the rocks on top to the camp below while blending in with the trees above. Coming to these realizations, I noticed something else. Something more sinister. The birds and small animals that we previously heard are now quiet. Aside from the soft babble of the creek, the entire place is just completely silent. As I start to explain this to the rest of the group, I see the wheels turning in their heads as well. Jake starts to head back to the small cave when a rustling up on some of the limestone ridgeline catches our attention. Something large was shifting around up there. Something that apparently didn't want Jake to see what was in that cave. We all look up and whatever or whoever made the noise starts shuffling down the ridge towards the makeshift camp. Because of the high cliff, the only way down to us would be by going all the way down to the pond and then double back up the stream. Realizing this and almost crapping ourselves at how open we were, we book it back up the stream, up the dirt path, across the field, and back to our cars. On the drive back to Edgewood, we all try and process what the heck just happened back there. I take a look at a satellite map, and the only real accessible way to the cliff would be to walk up there from the pond. It was too craggy to approach from the adjacent field to the east. Whatever made that noise would have had to be too large and a deer getting up there wouldn't necessarily be out of the question. It would have had some incredible timing to have started moving around just as Jake started looking at the cave and whatever red fabric was inside. Kyle found a report of an escaped convict from a local prison a few weeks ago 
and was convinced that it was his camp that we found, though we were all doubtful at best of this idea. To satisfy his concerns, we agreed to report the strange things we found to the police anonymously, since we all wanted to really get home at this point. None of us followed up on them, though, and I doubt anything came of it. A small, close-knit town police department gets a report of strange sightings from some stranger the next day that four high schoolers roll up and park outside a farmer's house for a few hours and then book it out. Doesn't exactly spell high-thread criminal activity to me. Still, things still just don't add up. Whoever came running down that cliff, if indeed was a who, wanted to keep whatever was inside that cave hidden, but not enough to actually fight for decently tall and able-bodied teenagers. We figured he just wanted to scare us off since the noises seemed to stop once we reached the dirt path. I thought it was odd that someone living out in the woods with something seemingly to hide would set up shop in a state park. That is, until I checked my GPS again. That little reroute that it took us on was an old entrance to the park that had been cut off by the purchase of the lake area sometime between the map records used for Google's navigation being updated and that day. The current entrance to the park is about two miles north of where the GPS sent us, thinking it found a faster route. The place we were at was still public land for sure, but not quite sure what we pictured. The user later updates. I spoke with Kyle and he decided to go back with two of our other friends to Mossy Glen. Here is his account. Our main goal in returning to Mossy Glen was to once again examine the area from before and see if anything or anyone still remained from our first trip as well as find and explore the cave system there. My first trip to the hollow was actually many years ago when I was a little kid. I was hunting with my family and we discover a large cave mouth that led into a good 12 foot drop, straight down, but towards the top the rock almost formed a few natural steps. Note this was not the much smaller cave we found at the camp on the first run. The cave system there has a personal connection to my family because of a passed down tale which I admittedly don't know if it's completely true and if embellished I have no idea how much. I will relate that here to explain why I wanted to explore this uncharted cave system so badly. My great great grandfather was a moonshiner during Prohibition. He owned a junkyard near Strawberry Point, Iowa but according to the family story, had his illegal distillery in a cave in Mossy Glen. His reputation for alcohol production became so high, he was good at his craft, that Al Capone would send a couple of his guys down from Chicago to pick up shipments. Some Chicago detectives noticed these regular trips to Iowa and went down to that area to investigate. Then they went missing. Rumor has it that they were whacked and hidden in the Mossy Glen Caves. As I said, I don't know how much of this is true and my older relatives that are the grandchildren of him are conveniently vague about it whenever I ask. There are actually a lot of stories about bodies being thrown into the Mossy Glen Caves, so naturally I wanted to see what I could find. It's all uncharted too, so we had no idea what to expect. Ginger, Nolan, and I showed up with some bike helmets, rope, a hatchet on my belt, bottled water, and two bags of pretzels and peach rings. 
about as amateur and unsafe a caving expedition as you can get. We made our way down the path and into the thick woods. Things were just quiet and dreary as before. Walking and walking. We came to the waterfall base. The small cave that we thought the guy from before was living out of is just barely big enough to sleep in and would actually make really nice cover. The bench and fire pit were gone, along with the stacks of three rocks. There was no evidence that anyone had ever been there, but it had been a year or so since that original trip so I wasn't expecting there to be. The waterfall was dried up, but the creek was still flowing. Upon further investigation, we found that the water was flowing out from the cave system, but it was too small a crack and filled with water, so we couldn't get inside. We climbed up the left of the cliff face because we didn't want to go around. There was a really nice limestone overhang that offered covering from the sun. Juniper berries hung down from the top, but we couldn't tell if they were the poisonous ones or not, so we didn't risk a chew. On the way up, Pictures really don't do justice as to how high the cliff actually is. Ginger fell and hit his head on a rock. Then I fell and hit my head on a rock. Eventually we got to the waterfall top. Urban legend says that a woman named Lucille committed suicide by jumping off of there. And if you say her name three times while standing on the edge, she'll appear to push you to your death. Each of us did this but received no communication from the dead. Ginger's nose started bleeding right after this, though, and he, being the superstitious type, he believed our supernatural prodding was the cause. Everywhere we walked, he left a blood trail. We split up to cover more ground. I went off on my own and got a ways away when I saw movement on a hill far above me. Whatever it was dodged behind a tree, and I got a little scared until an antler-crowned buck came running out. It was the largest one I had ever seen. We spent the rest of the day looking everywhere for that freaking cave. Lines of giant sinkholes gave us hope, but by the evening we had no entrance. Very disappointing. We left and went home. Not as scary or interesting as the first time, but hopefully works as a decent follow-up for anyone with lingering questions. The house near the entrance still seemed vacant, and we never saw anyone, though their friendly Labrador accompanied us on our trip. This took place about 10 years ago when I was a freshman in college. This is the first time I've ever recounted this story in full detail to anyone. I attended college in a rural mountain town in the northeast, a small school tucked away in the rolling hills of the mountains, the type of place where the beauty and casual grace of nature is juxtaposed by the ugliness of humanity. The newspaper was ultra-conservative, and you couldn't sojourn too deeply into the woods beyond a few trees without seeing some trace of meth activity. You know the type of place, I mean. Anyway, one of my new friends from college discovered somehow an abandoned train trestle deep in the woods about five miles from campus. In no man's land, basically. I don't remember how he found this place because it was very much off the beaten path. The trestle crossed above a river which placidly flowed about 40 feet below. It was actually quite beautiful, and we began going there maybe three times a week just chilling on the trestle, watching the water below and the open sky above. 
We would drink 40s there, smoke a bowl there, bring girls there. We began jumping off the trestle into the water below and then climbing back up. It was just a very college-y thing to do. Our chill spot, basically. So one day, just needing to get away from the dorms and away from it all, I decided to go by myself to the trestle for a swim. It was about 7pm, so I still had a good hour or so of dim sunlight, and I brought a flashlight for the walk home when it was sure to be dark. I made the trek through the pathways of the woods as I had done hundreds of times before, left my towel and flashlight on the trestle, and jumped into the water. The water was about 10 to 15 deep, I'd say. It flowed almost imperceptibly. You might as well be swimming in a stagnant pool. However, about maybe 50 yards away from the trestle, the river narrows and the current picks up significantly. Then about 20 yards after that, there's maybe a 20-foot high waterfall that bubbles and splashes with extreme violence. We used to watch large objects go over and never come up again. So there I am, dimly bobbing my head in and out of the water, doing underwater flips, etc. When I pop my head out of the water, I happen to glance to the side of the river and see a man walking towards the water. The water is kind of impeding my view, so I don't see him fluidly walking towards the water. I more so see him in different stages of being closer to the water, like flipping through a flip book. He's 15 feet away, 10 feet away, 5 feet away. I can barely give you a description. Maybe 6 feet tall, pale, skinny, black hair pulled back in a ponytail. What I do remember most about his appearance was the extremely empty look on his face and in his eyes. Like he was doing something mundane, taking out the trash or raking the leaves. I'm treading water, not knowing what to think, and I see that he's no longer beside the river. He dove in, and is swimming pinned straight directly at me, so fast, so, so fast. I try to swim the opposite way, but within a minute I feel him grab my ankle and tug. I tried to scream, but water filled my mouth. While I'm underwater, he lets go and goes up for air then grabs back on and pulls me again. It seems like he's done this before, and I never once see him after he jumped into the water. He's gradually pulling me to where the current picks up before the waterfall. I start to realize this and just start freaking flipping out, kicking, screaming, cursing to no effect. Finally, I feel the current start to take me, and as I twist away towards the waterfall, I look back and see this freaking guy just casually swimming back to where he jumped in the water, not even looking at me. This is by far the scariest moment of my life as I approach the waterfall. Long story short, I go over and I'm underwater for a really long time, over a minute I think. The water above unrelenting, pushing me under. The only reason I survived was there was a large log that had gone over and I grabbed it and leveraged it against the bottom to push me away from the crushing water. I obviously survived. But then I had to trek the miles back to my dorm in the dark without my flashlight, every step of the way thinking he would come back to finish the job.
The next year, a football player drowned going over that fall. The news said it was because there was an extreme current due to recent rainfall, but I've always wondered about that. I grew up in the South. Tons and tons of beautiful places to see that haven't been taken over by concrete yet. It's nice, but along with that it's pretty boring. Being a teenager and wanting to go out and have fun led mostly to improvising with your buddies and hoping something good will come out of the night. There wasn't really a local spot to go hang out like a club or a cool bar. And the places that were close to this were boring because you did see them so many times. I'm sure if you ever lived in a rural area you can understand that feeling completely. Something that I found a ton of enjoyment in as a teen was just cruising around super late at night listening to music. I would fill my gas tank up, grab something to drink on, a cigarillo, and just about take off driving around until the sun came up. It was a way for me to just clear my mind and relax. Those country back roads were always fun to drive down at 2am, and it was also just the right amount of spooky. Well, one night I absolutely got more than I was to bargain for. Can't remember what month it was exactly, but I know for a fact it was in the summertime because I was out of school, and I also remember it being a comfortable, chill night. So if I was to guess, it just had been around July or August. I was cruising around like I always did, and was completely worry-free. I had music blaring and I was in my zone. I decided to head down to a park just out of boredom. This particular park was at the very end of a long stretch of desolate country road, but it's a really pretty drive because of that. When I say desolate country road, I don't mean that it's some dirt road that goes through the woods or anything crazy like that. It's a normal paved road, but there's really nothing on it after a certain point. The entire road takes about 20 minutes to drive down to get to the park, and after about 10 minutes into the drive the houses start to get spread out further and further to becoming no houses and just road leading into the park. I think a lot of the reason I liked this drive at night is because of how creepy it was, and I looked at it as some sort of adventure or whatever. The park isn't open for camping or anything. It's mostly just a lot of land and walking trails and biking trails set up through miles of woods. So obviously at around 3am this morning it's pretty dead. I made it there and just did a slow, normal little loop around the drive of the park. The night before it stormed really bad, so badly I remember my parents and I had to take shelter because of the threat of a tornado touchdown. There ended up being no tornado, but the storms were pretty dang rough. Because of this I came up on a fallen tree in the road that looped around to the exit of the park that must have happened because of the storm. It wasn't some massive tree or anything. But I know for a fact that there was no way I could have gotten over it in my car, obviously. It was pitch black everywhere besides the front of my car because of my headlights, and because of that, 
I immediately ruled out backing up the entire way I just drove when I entered the park. I knew that was super dangerous and there was no way. At this spot in the road, there was flat land on each side of me. I figured that it would make the most sense to just back up in the grass beside me just a little and then drive back the way I came. It was a one-way loop around the park, but I wasn't really worried about going out the wrong way since it was so late. I started to back up off the road so I could get my car turned around. All was good until I went to pull back up on the road. I totally didn't take into account how wet the grass was and the amount of mud. My car went absolutely nowhere. My back tires were completely stuck and were spinning in place as I was trying to floor the gas pedal. I started to become pretty scared at this point. Not the most ideal situation to be in. I immediately take my cell phone out of my pocket and saw that I did have service. Super huge feeling of relief. I called my parents and told them what happened and where I was. They were pretty angry at me but said they'd pay for a tow truck to come and get me out. My parents both drove small four-door sedans and they would have zero help in the situation. I was about 45 minutes away from my house and the rest of the human civilization. So I realized that I would be stuck out there for at least an hour before someone was able to get me. Freaky feeling, but I tried getting out of my head and just continued to listen to music and be on my phone in the car while I waited. Not really much more I could do. After I kind of calmed down from the initial anger I had, I started to check my surroundings. I didn't even notice at first because of everything going on, but... In front of my car's placement was a field that was full of the most amount of deer I think I've ever seen at once. There legitimately must have been 40 deer in this field just walking around and eating grass. The field wasn't directly in front of my car, but if I was to get out and throw a rock in that direction, I would have easily been able to hit one of them. So if I was to guess, they were about 30 yards out. This really didn't help with the creepy level going on. Looking out in front of your car and seeing 80 eye reflections staring back at you is a bit of an alarming feeling overall. But I was relieved it was just a field of deer. I watched them for a little bit but I was quickly over it and started to just browse through my social media apps while waiting. They seemed to have been over it quicker than I was because they all went back to walking around and eating once they figured out that I wasn't going to attack them or anything. After browsing my phone for about 15 minutes, I finally get a call back from my parents letting me know that a tow truck guy is on the way, in about an hour and a half from my location. Still to this day, I remember hearing that and having the thought, you have to be freaking kidding me. I understood that me and only me was the reason I was in this situation, so I couldn't really be mad at anyone else. But that was very obviously not what I wanted to hear. I decided that the smartest thing for me to do was just to make sure my doors were all locked and lay in my back seat and take a nap to pass the time quick. So that's what I did. I wake up 45 minutes later to the feeling of being watched. I'm not sure if anyone has ever experienced that feeling before because I don't know how common it is. 
but there is a sixth sense alarm going off in my head telling me that I need to wake up. Waking up to that feeling in the situation I was in and the surroundings I was in is probably worst case scenario. I sit up and immediately check my surroundings and see nothing. I looked through my car very quickly for any sort of weapon and found a pocket knife. A freaking pocket knife. I was very scared, even though I saw and heard absolutely nothing. That feeling is terrifying. I was shocked to see that the field of deer in front of me was still full of deer. I don't know anything about the animal, but I guess I always just assumed they didn't hang out in the same place for very long. Not sure why I thought that, but I was surprised to see them nonetheless. I called my parents back to see if they heard any kind of update from the tow truck dude. I decided not to mention the feeling I was having because I didn't want them to worry more. And I also knew that it was literally nothing more than a feeling I had, and had nothing to back up why I was feeling that way other than just being spooked out in general. No update from the tow truck guy, so we all assumed everything was still the same on his end. The call lasted just a few minutes because I felt like such an idiot. They both had to wake up for work in a few hours, now have to spend a random hundred dollars plus, and on top of all that, they were worried about me. I could tell they were annoyed at the situation, but worried. I told them I'll make sure to tell them when the guy arrives, and that I'm sorry. We hung up, and I looked up from the phone, and immediately went from zero to a hundred in panic mode. The deer in front of me were all completely perked up, staring in the same direction right of them. Let me remind you that there are around 40 deer in this field. Every single one of them were stopped dead in their tracks, standing completely still, looking at something. I put my high beams on and stared, waiting for absolutely anything to happen at all. Nothing. I tapped my horn real quick. They didn't even budge or look my way. They were still completely glued to what was by them. The way the tree line was, I couldn't see that far over in the field. I know they were looking into the woods by them, but where I was, I was only able to see them. I could hear my heartbeat. I grabbed that stupid pocket knife and just waited for something to happen. I would say it was about a minute after I honked. Every single one of them in unison started to run the opposite way. They were running at full speed and within 20 seconds, the field was completely empty. I was petrified in fear. I knew that staying in my car is what would be the safest thing to do, but it's the worst feeling in the world when you feel like a sitting duck. My head was on a swivel. I was freaking out in every possible way. I assumed that it was a bear or something, but it could have been absolutely anything. I was convinced at that point that it was the devil himself. I didn't know what to do. I knew that the tow truck driver was close by, but I had no idea where he was. I began to shake because of nerves and just looked around to make sure nothing was by me and focusing on the field in front of me. I did this for what felt like an actual eternity, sitting in complete silence and darkness in the middle of nowhere, waiting for something to jump out and attack you. 
Fifteen of the longest minutes of my life go by and I start to see lights break through the tree line on the road. As it gets closer, I see that it's the tow truck guy. The lights on his truck felt like it was Jesus coming from heaven to rescue me. He gets up to me and I jump out of the car and immediately ask him if he has a gun on him. I told him very quickly what just happened to me and that something definitely is out there nearby. He let me know that he had a shotgun in the truck and assured me that it was most likely a bear or a bobcat. He gave me the whole, they are more scared of you than you are of them, BS. The tree was small enough for him to sort of bulldoze it out of the way with his truck and then he attached my car to his and pulled me out of the spot I was stuck in. He was very nonchalant about what I just experienced, but I was pretty badly shaken up from it. The whole time he was doing his thing, I still had my eyes glued out in that field waiting for something. He was completely done with everything in about 15 minutes, and he told me to follow his truck out of there onto the main road again. I got in my car and was ready more than anything to get the heck out of that park. We started to drive away from the spot I was in and I still had my head on a swivel, completely shook up. As we were driving away, I looked in my rearview mirror. We were down the park road just a tiny bit, but I could still see the spot I was stuck in partially lit up from the vehicle's lights and the moon. I watched in my rearview mirror, a man come out of the tree line, behind where my car was, and walk out to the middle of the road and watch us drive away. My heart stopped beating legitimately. I lost my breath and my eyes started to get full of tears because of how absolutely scared I was in this moment. I couldn't see any sort of details like what he looked like or even necessarily what he was wearing. To be honest, I don't really care. The feeling that I felt driving away from that spot knowing he was right there watching me the whole time. Watching me as I was freaking out looking around. Watching me as I was completely alone for a long time. Maybe even coming right up to my window and watching me as I slept. That's a feeling that is something I can't necessarily put into words. All these years later, and it still messes with me quite a bit. The entire time we were driving off, as long as I could see him, he didn't move. Just watched us in the road. A million things went through my mind. I was scared there may have been multiple people out in the road waiting for us. I was trying to figure out if I should start beating on my horn like crazy to get the tow truck guy to stop or not. I decided that all I wanted to do was get out of there, more than anything. The second that we finally got out of the park and were able to get on a two-lane road again, I flew past the tow truck driver and did not do anything below 70 miles per hour the whole way home. I flew through stop signs and stoplights. I absolutely did not care. The only thing on my mind was making it home. I got home, ran inside very quickly, acknowledged my parents, and said sorry and thank you and went to my room. I didn't get a single second of sleep the rest of the night. I was searching for any sort of records of things happening in that area, escaped convicts, similar stories, etc. I came to the conclusion that the man was some sort of squatter or homeless. I read many things online how it's common for homeless in rural areas to build shelter in the woods, which does make sense to me entirely on why they would do that, 
but obviously the unknown is the scariest part of it all. What if he wasn't homeless? What if he was going to hurt me? What if, what if, what if? There's so many possibilities of what could have happened. But the outcome that did happen is what I'm most grateful for. I never told my parents this story until many years after it happened and I was already an adult and moved out. It freaked them the heck out too when I told them. I never went back to that park. Ever. Even though I no longer live by there, I still have no desire at all to ever go back there. I don't think I could, even in broad daylight with a ton of people around. I also made the decision to stop doing those late night cruises. I did a few after that time with people, but even then I felt very uncomfortable and on edge. So, man in the woods, let's never, ever, ever meet again. Sweet.